Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's text continues the Psalms of Ascent with number 132. A Song of Ascents. Remember, O Yahweh, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to Yahweh and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids, until I find a place for Yahweh, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Ja'ar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Yahweh, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Yahweh swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne." For Yahweh has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. So again, 120 to 134 are the Psalms of Ascent, marking the time when Israelites would ascend to the temple in Jerusalem. They would sing these psalms. The Lutheran Study Bible gives a a fair suggestion here, I think, that Solomon might be the one who wrote this particular psalm, Maybe even, I could see in the context of his dedication of the temple, which can be seen in 1 Kings chapter 8, the idea that here he is remembering God's promises that God made to his father David before him, that the Lord would keep these promises. Now to Solomon, and then also, by extension, his sons who come after him. So he begins by whoever this is, whether it's Solomon or another, praying that God would remember this interaction, this interchange with King David. The hardships that he endured. That would be a recognition of David's faithfulness as he trusted the Lord to bring him through a battle with a giant named Goliath, battles with the Philistines ongoingly, and other such warfare and troubles and tribulations that David faced. And then we have a recollection of Second Samuel chapter 7. This isn't a direct citation from that chapter, but it is the general idea that King David felt bad because he was dwelling in a house and his God wasn't. 
His God was dwelling in nothing more than a tent. And so he sought to make a house for the Lord, some place more permanent for his, his king, his God. But the Lord would reject that. Come back to that thought in just a moment. So David, pledging essentially the idea that he would not rest until the Lord had an earthly resting place, a place for his throne. So verse 6, we heard it in Ephrathah. That's another name for the city of Bethlehem, which is David's city. So the people of David's own family have learned of this conversation, this promise. And we found it in the fields of Jaar. And that's going to be another name for the city of Kiriath-Jerim, which is where the Ark of the Covenant is when David summons it and brings it into Jerusalem. The ark being the very throne of God, it's mentioned in the next verses. The Philistines had captured it. They'd taken it off into Philistia, put it before Dagon in their own temple. Then bad things started happening. At first, Dagon falling apart, falling down before the ark of God, the throne of God. But then the people starting to get sick and so forth. And eventually the Philistines choose to send the ark back. And so to Kiriath-Jerim, eventually it makes it, David will summon it to Jerusalem from there, seeking to have God's throne be in the city of Jerusalem, what he has established as the capital of the kingdom. So let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Verse 7 is the picture of Israel beginning to see Jerusalem as the place where they would worship the Lord. Arise, O Yahweh, go to your resting place. Again, a declaration of this being God's house in the midst of his people. You and the ark of your might. So the ark of the covenant, again, the throne of God. And then let God's holiness basically be upon his people. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. The priestly garments were considered holy, uh, separate, set apart, not to be used for just anything. So there's a connection there with how the priests are clothed. But also, when you would see a priest doing the daily activities of the priesthood, the sacrifices and so forth, the priest is being covered in blood. That's a very good connection for us in the New Testament because as God's people now we know our righteousness comes from the shed blood of Jesus Christ as he has taken our sins away from us, rescued us from our death that we rightly deserved. Let your saints shout for joy so the holy ones of God, his people, would rejoice. They would take joy in God, thanking him for what he has done for them. And again, this is New Testament. This is us as well. We celebrate, we rejoice in the king who has redeemed us. Verse 10, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The anointed one, a reference to a prophet, priest, or king, the prophet who speaks God's word to his people, the priest who again intercedes, makes sacrifices for the people, and the king who rules, cares for the people of God. 
And again, here this is specifically a reference to King David, that God would not cause David's face to look away. That is, that in essence, a severing of the relationship, that David would seek to look at God, look towards the Lord for support, provision, for his very role. How can a king do what a king does? He's given the authority by God. So don't turn David's face away. The Hebrew word anointed one, by the way, is Mashiach, which gives us our word Messiah. So certainly you can talk about Jesus in this, and then maybe the moment on the cross where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even at that, Christ's face has not turned away from God. So, uh, severing of the relationship, the picture here, don't make David turn away. Instead, verse 11, Yahweh swore to David an oath that he will not turn back. So God will not take back his word. Uh, A beautiful promise and part of the hope of the church that the Lord is unchanging. That's Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. This is good because his promises endure then. If he was a changing God, we would never know. It would be shifting sands. Is his promise okay today? Am I forgiven today? And the answer to that is most certainly yes. Yes, you are. Your hope endures because Christ endures. Anyway, what was the oath that God swore to David? This is again the Second Samuel 7 promise. And as it was earlier in the hymn, not exactly the same words that are going to be found word-for-word citation from that chapter. But the idea is here, that the Lord has indeed said one of David's sons would continue to sit on the throne in Jerusalem forever as king over the Lord's people. Now, note here in verse 12, there is the reference that if, if they're keeping the covenant, that also implies if they don't keep the covenant, God removes them. That does happen to various kings throughout the era, but eventually to the people as a whole as God exiles them to Babylon. But he keeps his promise to David anyway. He restores them, brings them back, and sets his own son, Jesus Christ, upon the throne. And that's going to be the answer to the question I was about to ask. Did God keep this promise? And if so, how did he do it? Jesus is the answer. He is the one who sits on the throne forevermore, as he is now ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 13, Yahweh has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Zion, another name for the city of Jerusalem. Again, the capital city of King David. God has chosen it. And he does say that in connection with the building of the temple and so forth, that this is the place he has chosen to put his name in all the earth. God chose Jerusalem. He locates his promises in this world. That could also be a family conversation. It's not quite the same today. But where can you go to find God's promises today. If you really need to hear the words of forgiveness, where can you go? 
Those are conversations around where God has promised that he has placed his goodness, his gifts. We would certainly want to talk about the church to your local pastor who's been called so that you get to hear that forgiveness week in and week out, and he will speak it to you whenever you need to hear it. It doesn't have to be Sunday morning. But we can also talk about Scripture. We can talk about, I hope, in your family, parents, that our, our children learn that they can come to us and that we will speak Christ's forgiveness to them. This is good. God has placed his gifts among us. Verse 14, continued, same idea, 2 Samuel 7's kind of promise, not a citation though. Maybe talk to your kids, preface this section, hear the verbs, the stuff that's going to be done. Who does it all? This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. And it keeps going. God does the work. And that's a big part of Lutheran theology as well. When it comes to our salvation, God has done all of the work. It's already done. Christ has accomplished it on the cross. We just enjoy the gift. If we had to earn it, it wouldn't be a gift. So here are some of the things God has promised he will do. He will dwell in that place. Again, God's promise of locating his gifts in the earth, as we were just discussing in the last paragraph. He will abundantly bless her provisions, satisfying her poor with bread. The picture of God providing for his people, meeting their needs. And as Christians today, Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us the same, to trust that God will provide. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. I think we can take that both ways, that God will save the priests of his people. This is good. They need it just as much as any other. But also the idea that God gives them that part of their vocation, that role of sharing that salvation, speaking of that salvation. Hopefully your pastor today is a great voice of proclaiming Jesus Christ to you that your sins are forgiven, that you have life in him that never ends. Clothe the priest with salvation, her saints shouting for joy. We see these two next to each other in verse 9 as well. Priests, saints. I will make a horn to sprout for David. This is, in a way, a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 11, where God had said that a shoot would come forth from the stump of Jesse. God would raise up one of Jesse's descendants, that would be David, David's dad, so David's children after him. Just as here we're talking now of David, one of his descendants after him will be raised up to be a horn. This appears to be the prophetic use of the horn, where oftentimes in prophecies like, for example, Daniel or Revelation, when you see the idea of the horn, it refers to power or to a leader. And so there's going to be a strong leader who comes out of David. 
Jesus, the Savior of the world, King of all creation. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Certainly takes us back to Psalm 119, verse 105. Thy word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. God's word will guide his king, his chosen one. And this is both and with David and Jesus. His enemies I will clothe with shame. Again, keeping the theme of David and Jesus both in play, the enemies of David, God put aside. God defeated them. Shamed them while protecting Israel. But all the more so in Christ. The enemies, sin, death, and the devil, which have been defeated for us by the work of Christ. On him, his crown will shine. So whereas God is going to take these enemies and make them low, he's going to lift up David. Whereas he's going to make the enemies of sin, death, and the devil defeated, he's going to lift up Jesus. And indeed he did. Both on the third day and the ascension, a couple of times when you think of Jesus going up, up from the tomb, up from the world, God the Father at work in both events. Praise me.